Okay, so this morning, uh, we find ourselves in, in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we've been slowly making our way through uh, the book of Matthew, unpacking this idea of what it means to follow Jesus according to his standards. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we're so caught up in, 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 in this idea that, that we're following Jesus. You can ask anybody in this room, are you following Jesus? Yes, I'm following Jesus. And, and that comes with like a thousand different understandings and, and meanings and standards. And, and, and we rarely take a moment to examine our lives and examine the life of Jesus and say, where have I fallen out of step? Uh, where does my life not match the way of Jesus? And, and how is God inviting me to repent, uh, to turn away from the way that I'm living so that I can be more like Christ? And so during this season of Lent, these 40 days uh, leading up to Easter, we're taking this slow journey, examining what our uh, walk with Jesus looks like and how we can be more in step with him. And so uh, we uh, have arrived at Matthew chapter 5, and uh, if you open up your Bible, you, you might see the subheading there says uh, the Beatitudes or, or the Sermon on the Mount, uh, because we're arriving at a portion of Scripture where Jesus takes some time to give uh, what is the greatest sermon ever preached. The reason why it's the greatest sermon ever preached is because it is. Because uh, God preached it. And, uh, and, 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 and Jesus, when he preaches and speaks the word, it has the power to transform nations, cities, turn lives upside down. And this sermon has withstood the test of time. And the way this sermon begins uh, is uh, with uh, sort of this, this preamble, this pronouncement of blessings. Uh, your subheading might say the Beatitudes. That comes from a Latin word of blessings. And, and we just read some of those. And so most scholars and theologians agree that this Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's manifesto for what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. That this Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto for what it means to truly live. To truly live and walk the way that God has called us to live. And it's Jesus outlining what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is actually kind of take a, an even slower journey through these beatitudes, through these blessings and unpack what they, what they mean and what they don't mean and what they mean for us and hopefully see what Jesus is inviting us to and say yes to him. So uh, traditionally, these, these blessings have been broken up into three groups. Uh, the first group is verses 3 through 6, which we're going to unpack today. Uh, this sort of section really focuses on what it looks like to depend on God. The second group is verses 7 through 9. And this is focusing on what it looks like for those who live for God. What does it look like when we live for God? And the last beatitude uh, couple are those who are persecuted. So three groups, eight in total. I'm saying a bunch of numbers. If you're a math nerd, this is for you if you're not. You're doing a great job looking at me, so thank you. Uh, so this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, and we're going to start at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, when we read this, uh, immediately our, our, our minds go to a certain place. When we think poor, we live in this Western world, we think Poverty, financial destitute, having no money, being broke, uh, no source of income or livelihood that is sufficient. And, and, and though there's some truth to that, uh, when the Bible talks about poor, it's, it, it's taking into consideration a, a different type of person. And the Old Testament gives us insight into that. Uh, the idea in the Old Testament is, is that to be poor meant that you were powerless, 
Uh, And it had less to do with being financially destitute, although it was connected because the more amount of money we have, there is some power connected to that. We can resource our lives. But in this case that we see in the Bible, it just means to be completely powerless, to be oppressed by an enemy, and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, The idea is that it was the handicapped, those who were in prison, those who were unable to sufficiently provide for themselves because they didn't have the power to do it, those were considered the poor. And when we examine sort of this idea of the poor and the poverty, uh, most, you know, religious organizations or, or, or philosophies would, would discredit the poor. Uh, they would say that, that the poor are useless, that they're, that they're powerless, that they have nothing of value to bring to the table. And yet what we see in the scriptures is a completely different vision for the poor. God doesn't reject the poor. He defends them. God doesn't dismiss them. He draws near to the afflicted and to the powerless. And so this is less about a a financial condition and more about um, an ability to be sufficient for oneself. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, uh, For thus says uh, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Here we see a picture of God who is powerful and holy. Takes a moment to explain that just in case you forgot that he is the one who is high and lifted up, not you, who inhabits eternity. You can't do that. And he's the one who as high and grand and mighty as he is, draws near to the broken, draws near to the poor, draws near to the powerless, draws near to the lowly. And Jesus says that those who are poor in spirit, to them belong the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's ask ourselves this. Well, well, why is the kingdom of heaven theirs? Well, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who recognize they have nothing to offer a holy God. So when we connect uh, being poor to our spirituality, it's this posture of saying, there's nothing I can do to bribe God. There's nothing I can do to change his mind. No matter how hard I try, I still stand uh, sinful and condemned before him. And no matter how well behaved and how good I am, there's nothing I can do to change his mind and sort of outweigh this scale of my sinfulness to enter into his holiness. And those who are poor in spirit recognize that there's nothing within themselves they can do to offer or, or, or bring a holy God. And the kingdom belongs to humble sinners who know they don't deserve anything but God's judgment. You see, they're poor in spirit because they know they, can offer, they, they can't offer anything God. They can't do anything to pay off our debt and sin. And so like the Old Testament person who was poor and powerless, all they could do was wait on God. All they could do was bring themselves to God and wait and depend on him for salvation and not their own efforts. And Jesus is saying that that kind of person who, as many have said before, is spiritually bankrupt, nothing within you to offer God, to pay off your debt of sin, and you realize that the kingdom of God is yours. Because God can draw near to that humble sinner and rescue and bring you into his kingdom. 
We continue reading. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn what? There's been a lot of um, people who would, who would take this scripture and say, well, uh, they're, they're mourning their spiritual condition, or, or they're mourning their sinfulness, or, or they're mourning uh, the affliction and the oppression they're experiencing. And that could be true. But Jesus just says, blessed are those who mourn. He, he doesn't go in and, and, and sort of add that descriptive of, of what that mourning looks like. He just says, blessed are those who mourn. Are, are you mourning this morning? Uh, maybe you're, you're mourning the loss of a, of a loved one. Maybe you feel sad and depressed and you're overwhelmed with life. Are you grieving? Grieving a, a failed dream, a, a difficult relationship, a, a wayward child who has abandoned the faith. Are you grieving and mourning over sin as you examine your life and you're entangled by sin, trying to untangle your life, realizing there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of this mess and, 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 and you're grieving this reality of where you are and where God has called you to be and realizing there's nothing you can do to bridge that gap? Are you mourning? Take a moment to consider how kind our God is. He doesn't just say, I'll comfort your mourning if it looks like this. I'll comfort you if your mourning looks like you're really upset uh, because uh, your, your neighbor uh, acted wickedly towards you. Uh, I'll comfort you if you mourn over this specific sin at this specific time. No, he just says, blessed are those who mourn. Mourning our sin, mourning loss, grieving depressed, afflicted, and he promises that they shall be comforted. Jesus says, blessed are you. Why? Because as John Stott says, sorrow, mourning, grieving can be the source of blessing. How so? Because Jesus says that when we turn to God for help and turn to God for forgiveness, he is there to comfort you. And where the world we live in would say, you're mourning and you're suffering because of the way that you're living. And, and that might be true. You get what you deserve. And, and when the world would say, oh, uh, you're mourning because you failed and you're unsuccessful. Try to do better next time. Jesus comes and says, you're mourning. I'll comfort you. Not with a solution. Not with here's what you should do next. Simply his presence meeting you where you are and enabling you to walk with him and be more like him. Church, be encouraged this morning that if you're mourning, if you're sad, if you're grieved, if you're overwhelmed and, and, and you might've sat in your room and you, and you thought to yourself, man, this is a really dumb thing to be overwhelmed about. Praise be to God that that can be a source that, that is a pathway for intimacy with him. And he can meet you even in the most minute, small details of your life. Are you mourning? There's good news. He comforts. We continue reading. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is a fun one. Uh, when the word meek comes to mind, often we see this image of a person who is not aggressive, who is not assertive. We say meek, that means weak. There's no way uh, I, I, I want to be meek. I've actually read stories this week of people who've abandoned the faith because they said, I don't want to be meek. That's, that's weakness. That's not necessarily the vision that, that Jesus is offering. 
When we think of meek, we think of a person that's a super humble individual that gets walked over and has no control over life. And what has ended up happening is that we've adopted a definition for meekness that is nowhere found in the scripture because we live in a Western world. Maybe you've heard it. Meekness, that means power under control. And that's just not true. Nowhere in the scripture do we see a definition for meekness that says, oh, being meek, that means you're, you're powerful, yet you're under control. It's a Western idea we've adopted because Americans don't want to say, hey, we're not, we're not weak, we're, we're powerful, we just got it under control. Uh, that's a different attribute. I don't know what that is. So if you're powerful and you have it under control, good. Store it out of the way, that's not meekness. So what is meekness? What does the Bible say is meekness? In order to understand this, we have to let the scripture interpret the scripture. So where do we see this word meekness? And in fact, where do we see this blessing in the scripture? Turn with me to Psalm chapter 37, uh, verse 1 through 13. If you have your phone, type it in. Um, If you're not using your phone, you can look to the screen, but I want you to read these scriptures with me. Psalm chapter 37, verse 1. We're going to read it together. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And we stop there. All right, I'm good. I got my happy psalm in. I'm done. Book closed, move on. But let's keep reading. Verse five, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. What is he talking about? Verse six, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noon day. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but for those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees his day is coming. We get to Psalm 37 and we love that idea that as we delight ourselves in the Lord, uh, he will give us the desires of our heart, that as we trust in him, he'll work out our direction. But when we examine it within the context, we see that the psalmist is one who is afflicted and oppressed by who? The wicked, the evil doer. And the Lord is saying that fret not over what they're scheming and doing and plotting against you. I will be with you. I will protect you. Though they build kingdoms, I'm going to give you the land. You see, when we read verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The picture that we get here is a people who have no power. The picture we see here is a powerless people who've been oppressed by the wicked. The Hebrew word is ani, and it literally means poor and afflicted the sufferers and the oppressed in your mind and in your circumstance. Meek and humble because their circumstance drove them to God. And when the scripture says they will inherit the land, uh, Jesus extends this promise to they'll inherit the whole earth. 
And I, and I love what uh, Frederick Bruner says. He says, the promise of the earth in this beatitude points to one of the most breathtaking facts in scripture, that this earth, the one we are living in, is going to be the scene of the, of the coming kingdom of God, this renewed earth. You see, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea is when the wicked and the powerful are raging and building kingdoms that are destructive and, 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 and uh, wage war against God's kingdom, that God himself will come and deliver the powerless, deliver the humble, deliver the meek, and establish them uh, in his land. And what is that land? This future glory that we get to enjoy with Jesus, this earth, rid of sin, renewed and restored to the way it was intended to be, ruling and reigning with God. This has nothing to do with power under control and everything to do with positioning ourselves in such a place where we realize that there's nothing we can do to assert ourselves or aggressively build a kingdom for ourselves. We submit to the king who is advancing the kingdom by force. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, when you are hungry and you are thirsty, uh, these needs have a unique way to move you to do whatever you need to do to satisfy those needs. Uh, When you're hungry, you will go out of your way to make sure you need to do whatever you need to do so that you're not hungry anymore. Same goes for for when you are thirsty. So so what does it mean when we consider hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Well, there's three ideas. The first one is is this idea of of, of hungering and thirsting for justice, God's justice. Uh, That that God's justice would be uh, enacted over those who have committed wickedness against his kingdom, his people, and his earth. Uh, and, and one of the ideas here that would have been most familiar was this, this Roman oppression, uh, where uh, Roman officials were taxing Jewish landowners up to 60, 70% uh, and, and, and robbing them of their livelihood and dignity. Some weren't allowed to, to shop in certain markets and they were uh, heavily, heavily uh, oppressed. And so when they think of righteousness, they think of justice because that's not the way that God has oriented and set up the world to function. Uh, God didn't set up the world where one people group would dominate over another people group and one would experience all sorts of uh, advancement because of it and another would suffer. And so it's this idea of God reordering and reorienting the world in such a way where it functions in perfect harmony, where people perfectly love one another because they are perfectly loved by God and love him back. And we enjoy a creation that isn't waging war against itself, but is functioning in perfect harmony. The second idea was this idea of of personal righteousness. Uh, When Matthew talks about righteousness, he talks about uh, this idea of doing right in God's eyes. Um, It's this desire to uh, live a life that honors God and isn't entangled by sin. Uh, that God is perfectly righteous. Uh, There's parts of my life that are unrighteous. And how do I need to submit my life to his righteousness so I can become more like him? Uh, Craig Bloomberg has this crazy definition uh, that I love. I even wrote sheesh because I was just so moved by it. So get ready. Uh, Righteousness, a a desire to see God's standards established and obeyed in every area of life. 
a desire to see God's standards, not your own standards, God's standards, established, rooted, uh, and obeyed in every single area of your life. Not just the ones that people see, but even the private ones, the ones uh, that are unseen. Every single of your area of your life matching God's standards. That's, that's convicting. The third idea of righteousness that we see is God's saving activity, uh, where we think about salvation. That God will execute justice. God will save the world. He will make everything right again. And, and, and the scripture says that those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness will be satisfied. Uh, other translation says they will be filled. And, and I love this idea of satisfied and filled. Why will you be satisfied? Why will you be filled when you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because it is God, living bread, who satisfies this hunger. Because it is God, living water, who quenches this thirst. You will be satisfied and filled because it is his presence inside of you, enabling you to create a better world to live in, enabling you to live by his satisfying standards, enabling you to receive his grace and draw near to the king. You'll be satisfied and filled because it is his presence enabling you to taste this grace. And when we want to feast on self-reliance and we want to feast on doubt or fear or shame or comparison, this righteousness is not self-attained. It's not a self-righteousness. It's a righteousness from God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who then get their life together, get everything sorted out, then they'll be satisfied. That's not what we read here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Because the God who knew no sin becomes sin so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. That isn't based on our own self-worth, attaining it for ourselves, our own actions, our own righteousness. It's a gift from God. Now, we just covered a, a, a lot of scripture. And uh, the question is, what do we do with it? Um, And to be even more direct, uh, what does this mean for you and I? Because as we we read these blessings, as we unpack some of their their, their meanings briefly, uh, you may be thinking to yourself, I don't live in Psalm 37. Uh, That's not my context. Uh, I'm not oppressed. I'm not experiencing injustice at the hand of an evildoer. Uh, That's not the world I live in. Uh, I'm not suffering under the wicked. And yet there's others in this room that have cried themselves to sleep, longing for a world where oppression and wickedness releases the hold on their lives because that's all they know. And to make matters even more difficult, when we read these blessings, these are not timeless truths about how our world works. That's just not how the world works that we live in. And you know this. Time after time, people who mourn, people who grieve, people who are distressed and depressed go uncomforted. Time after time, it's not the meek who inherit the land. It's the aggressive who dominate the world. And history shows us that over and over again, it's the harsh and the domineering who dominate and build kingdoms, not the meek. 
It's the ruthless CEOs and the aggressive politicians who end up on top. It's the assertive who assert themselves onto the throne uh, and build the empire that they want to build for their own selfish gain. Time and time again, the hunger for righteousness, the desire to see justice met in the world that we live in, uh, justice enacted upon the most unjust situations and aspects of life, go unmet. And in the world that we live in, it doesn't seem like blessings are ascribed to the poor, to the humble, and to the broken. You see, these blessings are not timeless truths for how the world currently works. And they aren't also a checklist that we use to work our way into the kingdom. Uh, they, they, they weren't designed for you to examine your life and say, okay, let me, let me be more poor. Uh, or let me, be, let me mourn more so God will comfort me. Or, or let me just try to work up this hunger and thirst so that I can become more righteous. No, the, the, these aren't timeless truths for how the world currently works. Hear me, currently works. And these also aren't a checklist for what you should be doing in your day-to-day life so that you can uh, earn God's favor and God's approval. No, these are an invitation for what life with Jesus can look like. And I love the way Michael Wilkins says it. He says, the Beatitudes are not imperatives or required standards that the disciples must perform in order to procure God's approval. Instead, they provide guidelines for the kind of life that Jesus intends to produce in his disciples. The Beatitudes are are, are guidelines, are an invitation for what life in the kingdom of God can look like when we respond to that call to follow him and the type of life that Jesus wants to produce in you through his spirit enabling you to follow him and love him. These aren't timeless truths for the world that we live in, and they're not a checklist for righteousness. What are they? They are an invitation to reframe the way you think about the world. The Beatitudes are an invitation to reframe and restructure the way you think about poverty. To reframe and restructure the way you think about suffering. To reframe and restructure the way you think about power dynamics and righteousness. And to see it through the lens of Jesus, they are an invitation to experience life in the kingdom of God. As one scholar says, these are an announcement. Not a philosophical breakdown or analysis of the world. These blessings are an announcement of what the kingdom of God can look like right now and what we have to look forward to in the future. A world that is ours that is not broken down by division and turmoil and strife. A world where all we know is comfort because the enemy of sin has been completely removed. A world where our hunger and thirst is completely and eternally satisfied because we're living in union with the king, unbroken by sin. These blessings are an announcement of a kingdom that is here right now and what it looks like when it comes in its fullness and what life can look like as a citizen of that kingdom. And Jesus shows us this kingdom life. Jesus shows us that that being rich in material blessings is not always a sign of God's approval in one's life. 
Jesus, who was rich and enjoyed the splendor of heaven, enters into a poverty-stricken land and shows us that true wealth is not found in status or money. Rather, it is found in obedience to God the Father and radical dependence on the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus was hungry and thirsty, he shows us that radical dependence to the Father is far more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. And that the Father is in fact good and trustworthy and that he will provide and sustain his children. Jesus shows us uh, that that, that he's the one who becomes poor in spirit, but he's also the one who mourns. Turn with me to John chapter 11, uh, verse 32 through 35. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Verse 33. The context here is that Lazarus, a family member, has just passed away. And they're doing what you and I do when we lose someone. They're mourning. They're grieving the loss of a loved one. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? And you know how this story goes. A a moment of tragedy and defeat and grief and suffering turns into a moment of victory and life and hope. Where Lazarus, who was dead in the tomb for four days, uh, Jesus calls him out and he experiences new resurrection life. And what's so amazing about this is that Jesus shows us that, that when his family weeps, that when his family is grieving the loss of a loved one, he weeps with them. And he draws near with the comfort of his presence. Friends, are are you tired this morning? Are are you hurting? Are are, are you grieving? Are you sad? Are are you weeping? Are are you overwhelmed with life and you want to call it quits? This shows us that Jesus draws near to comfort you with his presence. And his presence is available to you. But we also see something else that's incredible. Jesus doesn't just comfort with his presence. He gives us a taste of this promise. That is, he will make all things new. Uh, That he will rid the world that is torn by sin. And the sin that produces death and mourning and suffering will be no more. And Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth once and for all. And there will be no more mourning. And his presence, his power will make everything new again. That the one who comforts us with his presence will also be the one who will raise Lazarus from the dead. And is also raising us to new life in him. Revelation 7.17 gives us a taste of this. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hear me, church. The one who weeps with you is also the one who will wipe away every tear. And we stand in between this tension of a God who comforts us with his presence 
and reminds us of his promise that he will make all things new. And he doesn't leave us in that middle. He is there with us and his power, his presence enables us to hope again and to believe his word that this is true, that he will make all things new. We see the meekness of Jesus on display when he is on trial. He's falsely accused as a criminal against Rome and falsely accused for breaking the Jewish law, standing before Pontius Pilate, uh, giving a testimony for why he's here, while a Jewish crowd and mob is outside raging, crucify him, crucify him. What does Jesus do in this moment? He shows us what meekness looks like. Frederick Bruner says it best, the overall impression of Jesus on trial is an impression of pose. It is the poise of not having to assert oneself. It is the poise, if I may put it this way, of a believer. There is meekness that is almighty and gentleness that is strong. Jesus firsthand shows us that meekness does not mean weakness. Uh, Jesus was not afraid to confront the religious elite. He did this time and time again. Meekness does not mean being weak. Jesus was strong enough to take on the most brutal death possible, death on the cross. And in a world that emphasizes winning and success as the truest sign of of success and, and winning your battle as the truest sign of strength, what does Jesus do? He dies on a cross the ultimate sign of loss and failure. And in, 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 in the world that we live in, these nails are a piercing reminder to some that Jesus failed, that Jesus lost. But in the kingdom of God, his scars are evidence of his victory. And his resurrection is the ultimate reminder that death and sin and the enemy have been defeated. Jesus proclaims, freedom and preaches good news from a gentle and meek posture. Jesus turns cities upside down in the most non-assertive, non-violent way. Jesus defeats the devil and conquers the power of sin by humbling himself and taking on death at the cross. Why? So that you and I can become the righteousness of God. So that you and I who hunger for freedom and for life and for satisfaction and for victory and have out of our own strength have tried to go get it for ourselves and we assert ourselves and take this world by force only to come up empty, enslaved, further in bondage, completely empty so that you and I can be filled with his presence. So that you and I can find victory and life that doesn't come from taking what's ours and building our kingdom but from submitting our lives to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And seeing this King, seeing this Lord, raise us up to new life. See, Jesus shows us what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like and what God's kingdom is like. And when we read these Beatitudes, it's an invitation to live the life that a kingdom citizen lives to live the life of Jesus. Jesus, who is the king that comes to rescue people from their sin. Jesus, who is the king who ushers in a kingdom that brings comfort, that brings satisfaction, that brings power and authority. To who? To those who are poor in spirit and have nothing to offer. To those who mourn, who have disqualified themselves because of their suffering and grieving. 
to those who are so hungry and thirsty and believe that there's nothing in this world that can truly satisfy. So what's the point of living and going on? And what's so beautiful about this is that these beatitudes are also a fulfillment of promise. Last passage, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 through 3. The first three beatitudes are reflected in this Old Testament passage. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are unbound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does this sound familiar, church? When Jesus begins his earthly ministry, Luke says that, 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 that Jesus begins his ministry by entering into the temple and he reads these first two verses. He, he takes the scroll, unrolls it, reads these first two verses in all of its glory, closes the scroll and says, today the scripture has been fulfilled. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. We see Jesus coming in. Luke says, this is the king who ushers in the kingdom. And Matthew says, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Why? Because the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn because why? The kingdom come, the king comes to bring comfort, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be the planting of the Lord, that the Lord may be glorified. Uh, The Bible is just, it can't make this up. This is just one unified story about Jesus. Isn't this amazing? And when we consider the context is, is that we see God arrives to restore the glory of his people after they've repented of their sin after they've turned away from self-righteousness, from living for themselves, for asserting themselves and building their own kingdom, and they turn to the king humbly. And he says that he brings good news to the poor. That word poor is the same Hebrew word that we just read in Psalm 37. And what is this good news? That he has come to heal the brokenhearted. That he has come to forgive sinners and set them free. That he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That God will enact justice. That where we see time and time again where, where justice is unmet and it seems like the wicked is thriving and the world is truly messed up. God is coming to make all things right. And he's going to not only make all things right, he's going to comfort those who've been afflicted. Those who mourn, those who've been oppressed by sin. Those who've been oppressed by an enemy. Those who've been oppressed by the enemy. He will grant to those who mourn in Zion, give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Why? That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That idea of righteousness being in right standing with the Lord. How are you standing before the Lord? Your life looks like this beautiful, well-built and rooted oak tree, firm and secure and planted in him. And this right standing with God, 
This gift of grace is not something we earn. It is, it is a gift. It is given freely to all those who turn to Jesus and respond to his invitation to follow him. It's not something that we earn. Hear me. But it is something that is freely given and that we grow into. We don't earn it. It's already ours. We grow into it believing every single day more and more that I am the righteousness of God and submitting our lives to him as he enables us to pursue holiness and righteousness with him. You see, this announcement, these blessings are the announcement of good news. It's good news because Jesus has made this life available to you and he's inviting all to experience it. You see, you don't work your way into this kingdom, you receive it. You don't work your way to power, to satisfaction, to comfort and blessing. You receive this life from a king who's laid down his life so that he can get his life inside of you and bring you into his kingdom. This is purely a gift. And church, when you read these blessings, may you read an invitation that the king is extending to you to live life in the kingdom of God. And to taste and see what that life looks like. When you feel broken and poor and unable, there's good news. The kingdom is for you. His power and authority enabling you to walk in victory. If you're mourning, grieving, sad, he promises his presence to comfort you and call to attention. That what's happening right now, it won't always be that way. And that his kingdom will be established on earth as it is in heaven forever. Are you hungry and thirsty? Come taste and see that he's good. And watch how life with Jesus begins to transform and reframe and reshape the way we see the world and walk in it. Let's close in prayer.